you've been around Hebron uh, very long, you know that we place a lot of um, emphasis on discipleship. But we also believe that membership is also a uh, critical part of the journey of one's Christian life. An opportunity to um, gather together with other believers and say, yes, the Lord's brought us together to serve Him in this place. This morning on Palm Sunday, I'd like to... um, turn our attention to Luke's gospel. If you were here about six weeks ago, you know that Tim preached on Palm Sunday. He preached on that part of the story that deals with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. But there's a part of the story that begins his journey from the Mount of Olives. It's that section of the trip that I'd like for us to focus uh, this morning. So Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 44. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Six hundred years before the birth of Christ, there's a man named Thales who lived in Miletus, which is a seaport on the Sea of the Mediterranean Sea. He is thought to be the first philosopher to ever begin the school of Greek philosophy. So Thales was fairly well known, and as a result, he would often entertain visitors from far and wide. And one particular day, he had a visitor by the name of Salon who had come from Athens. And so Thales put on a big spread in his home, and he invited a number of guests, and Salon was there. And The story goes that when Salon arrived, he looked around the spacious home and he saw no women. And so he said to Thales, where is your wife? And then he said, where are your children? And Thales said, I have no wife and I have no children. And immediately Salon began to berate him. He'd tease him and he uh, made all kinds of uh, jokes uh, about the fact that he had no wife and children. It went on for about a half hour until another guest came in, a perfect stranger, and Thales went over to him and greeted him and then took him aside for about 15 minutes. After that time, Thales brought this stranger back and introduced him to Salon and said to him, this man has come from Athens. And Salon said, what's the news from my hometown? The man said, I I really don't uh, have much news, except that a famous man lost a son, and the son was buried this week. Salon said, what was the man's name? The stranger said, I don't know his name. All I know is that his father was traveling abroad. Salon said, his name wasn't Salon, was it? The stranger said, I I think that was the name. I think it was the son of Salon who died. Instantly, Salon began to weep. 
And then he began to uncontrollably sob. In fact, it got so bad that Thales decided to take him aside and took him into his own room. And he said to Salon, he said, such things strike terror into the heart of the most resolute man. And it's that terror that has kept me both from wife and children. But take heart. None of that man's story is true. Your son is still alive. When you come to Palm Sunday, it's, you've got a choice to make. You can either focus on the human side of Palm Sunday, or you can focus on the divine side of the story. Six weeks ago, Tim preached on the human side. It's the story of a cult and coats and cheers. But there's another side of the story that's often missed. And it's that side of the story that gives us the perspective that God had on this Sunday called Palm Sunday. Years ago, Art Linkletter made the observation that kids perceive a lot about life by making free mental associations. Like the time the Sunday school teacher said to her class of uh, four-year-olds, do you know what today is? Little girl in the front row said, yes, today is Palm Sunday. The teacher said, that's right. Do you know what next week is? The little girl said, yes, Easter. The teacher said, well, do you know what happened on Easter? And the little girl said, yes, that's when Jesus came out of the tomb. And before the teacher could continue, the little girl said, and if he sees his shadow... There'll be six more weeks of winter. <laughs> now, it's true that children make free associations. That's how they begin to learn. But the interesting thing is, so do adults. In the early centuries of the Christian church, Christians called this particular Sunday not Palm Sunday, but Passion Sunday. And the reason is, that when they focused on Jesus' ride into Jerusalem, they didn't focus on that part of the ride that got him near the city gates and inside. They didn't focus on the colt and the chants and the coats. They focused on the first part of the trip, when Jesus made his way down from the Mount of Olives to the eastern gate, because they recognized that what happens on that roadway before the cheers, before the coats, before the palms, what happened on that roadway is a perfect sign of God's perspective on what Jesus was to do the rest of the week. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the setting. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, there's a Mennonite minister out in Ohio that is the pastor of a very small church. In fact, it's not known nationally. This man, Bill Detweiler, is not known for writing a book. He's not known for particular eloquence. In fact, if it weren't for one thing, I would have never known him. What I found out about him was the way he signed off on his letters. 
He didn't say sincerely yours. He didn't say gratefully. He always signs his letters, on my happy way home. Now, that's interesting to me. Because I wonder if it means that he never had any problem. I wonder if he never lost a loved one. I wonder if he was immune to the pains of life on my happy way home. You see, Jesus could have signed his letters that way. Because when you come to this text, Jesus is on his happy way home. From the colt to the upper room, from the garden to his betrayal, from his arrest to the cross, Jesus is in charge of it all. There are no accidents. There's nothing that escapes his purview. He knows exactly what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is directing him every step of the way. Now think of it. When it would be natural for a man like Jesus to simply slip into town on this Passover, Jesus orchestrates a defiant approach into the city that will hasten his arrest. When he rides down that mountain on that colt, he knows exactly what's going to happen except what happens when he rounds a particular corner. Luke says, as he looked at the city, he began to weep. I don't think he planned that emotional outburst. And that brings us to the second point. Notice the sorrow. He wept over it. There are only two places in the gospel where Jesus cries. The first is the verse you ought to have memorized. It's good on trivial pursuit. What's the shortest verse in the New Testament? He wept. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. Now remember that occasion for his weeping. He comes to Bethany, two miles from the city of Jerusalem. He comes to the hometown of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He comes late in the perspective of Mary and Martha, for their brother has died several days earlier. And John tells us when he gets there, he begins to be deeply troubled in fact, John says he's deeply moved in his spirit, and he weeps. And the word John uses there is decaro, which means to shed tears. When Jesus gets to Bethany and he sees the morning, he begins to shed tears. But ladies and gentlemen... The only other time Jesus weeps is here. And the word used here is kalio, which doesn't mean to shed a few tears. It means to be overcome with grief, to break down and to sob. Jesus here is crying uncontrollably. Not only does Luke use that verb, 
but he puts it in the ingressive, aorist, active, indicative tense. You say, I always wondered about that. Not only is he sobbing, he is uncontrollably sobbing. It is the, the most severe verb tense that anyone could use. Jesus is weeping in a way that you don't find anywhere else in all of the gospel. And I would submit to you, Jesus never wept like that before, and He's never wept like that since. This is the moment of Jesus' passion. Then third, notice the senselessness. He wept over Jerusalem, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, the word peace is huge in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the word that's commonly used for peace is shalom. It means wholeness, completeness. The notion of shalom is, is that something is broken beyond repair, and God reforms it. Shalom isn't just peace, man. It means wholeness. And in the New Testament, the word is arene, from which we get the name Irene, arene, which means peace. And never before in the Bible does peace and rest come together until Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is the first to bring shalom and arene together. How many times does Jesus say to people, crowds and his disciples, how many times does he use the word peace? He, does use, he used the word rest. And every time he does... He's talking about what happens in a life as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus never uses the term rest or peace to describe what men and women can do among themselves or for themselves. Peace and rest to Jesus are never the function of goodwill between people and nations. He never uses it that way. In fact, Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, those who seek to relegate the peace of God to a sphere of human endeavor are labeled false prophets. The Holy Spirit is clear. The peace and rest to which Jesus refers are a gift God bestows on those He chooses. They are the gift He gives to those with whom He's established a relationship. Isn't that exactly what Jesus means when He says to the crowds, Come unto Me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that exactly what He means when He says to the disciples, My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. You see, for J Jesus, peace and rest are the endowment of God through the Holy Spirit. And so when he looks at this city and he says, even you, if you had known on this day 
the things that it made for, would make for peace. Why does he say even you? Well, think who's in that city on this Passover. There are Jews from around the world. They've been circumcised in the foreskin of their flesh. They are the descendants of Abraham. They've come out of obedience to God. And yet their hearts have never been circumcised. They have ears that cannot hear. They have eyes that cannot see. They have minds that are clouded. They've been to Passovers before, but they have no concept of the fact that God has drawn near. Now think about that. Thirty-three years earlier, a group of angels appeared to shepherds in a field. And they began to say to them, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those to whom He is pleased, or with whom He is pleased. Here, 33 years later, the Prince of Peace is on the outskirts of the city of God, and everyone in that city misses it. This is the greatest demonstration of human blindness, human misunderstanding in all of the Scriptures. The Prince of Peace has come, and they miss it. Now, can you think of a greater description of the day in which we live? 2,000 Palm Sundays, and yet the vast majority of people miss it, many of them in the church. Years ago, I had the opportunity to speak to a group of alcoholics in an AA meeting. When I asked the man how long I had to speak, he said about 45 minutes. doesn't take much preparation if you get to speak 45 minutes. Five minutes, you better work hard. <laughs> but I did make some notes. But when I came, one man said, could we just talk? So I said, sure, we can just talk. They began to ask questions, and I began to give the answers that I knew. And when it was over, after about 45 minutes, one guy said, you know, this is the first time I ever got the answers to the questions I've asked for years. And I said, you're wrong. I bet you've gotten those answers before, but you never had ears to hear them. The only difference now is that the Lord's opened your ears. You've heard the answers before with your ears, but you didn't process it. Because today the Holy Spirit has opened your ears. I love what David says in Psalm 40. You, O Lord, have dug for me two ears. Think about that. God digging out his ears. What David is saying is, if you hadn't given me the capacities, I would never know you. Now, that's David. 
standing 1,500 years before Christ, and he knows that only the Spirit of God can open ears and eyes and hearts and minds. But here in the greatest display of divine sorrow recorded in the Bible, when Jesus sees the city of God, he sobs because he knows that almost every ear and almost every eye and every mind and nearly every heart is closed. And he sobs. And then fourth and finally, notice the sensibilities. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now think about that. In verse 40, Jesus says to the religious leaders who are excoriating the children, he says, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, if these were silent, these who were in praise of me, these who were saying, save us now, that's what Hosanna means. What Jesus says to them is, the very stones would testify to their need for salvation and to my lordship. But in the space of five verses, Jesus speaks about stones in another way. He says, I tell you the truth, not one stone of the wall of the city, of the temple will be left on the other. These stones will testify to unbelief. Now, Jesus is prophesying here. And in 40 years, his words become true. You know what happens in AD 70? The Romans sweep in, and they, according to Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, what the Romans did was they took wooden siege works. They built wooden scaffolds, and they put them all around the walls of the city, and they climbed up the scaffolds and down into the city and destroyed the entire place. You know what the word embankment or barricade literally is in Greek? It's a word that's clearly defined as a set of timbers. Jesus knows in 40 years the Romans will come, they'll take a set of timbers, and they'll destroy the city. And so when he sees their unbelief, he weeps. But that's only half of the reason that he cries. After the Civil War was over, Abraham Lincoln was asked this question. How could you tolerate all the suffering that the South has caused you? How can you tolerate 
all of the suffering that the South has caused you. You know what Lincoln said? I didn't suffer by the South. I suffered with the South. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. 700 years before he's born, God comes to a man named Hosea, a prophet. He tells him, I want you to go out and I want you to marry a prostitute. And when Hosea says, why, the Lord says, because I want to use your marriage as an illustration of my marriage to Israel. Then in chapter 11, the Lord says, my people are bent on turning away from me. How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassions grow warm and tender. The word he uses there for compassion literally means, as you know, to suffer alongside of, to suffer with. And you can search the rest of the Old Testament all 700 years, and you'll never see another expression of God's compassion until Jesus comes. 700 years after the Lord speaks to Hosea, Jesus is on a colt and he's riding from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem and he doesn't just shed a few tears, he breaks down and he sobs uncontrollably. You see, if all you see in Palm Sunday are the coats and the colt and the cheers, you're missing the rest of the story. Because nowhere in the Bible is there a greater expression of God's perspective and His character as it relates to suffering as here on this colt. He doesn't just sob for those who don't believe. He sobs for those who do. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness. Years ago, I remember a man telling a story I've never forgotten. He said a man was driving home in the middle of winter. It was snowing like crazy. His car careens off the road, goes into the ditch, The driver's side doors and the passenger side door on that side are pinned against the hillside. His head hits the steering wheel and he's knocked out. When he comes to, he tries to get out his door. He can't. He sees that there's no way the door's jammed up against the hillside. And so he climbs across the seat to the passenger side door. He tries to open that door, but he can't because the volume of snow is so great. He can't get it open. He reaches in the back on that side trying to open that door. He can't get that door open either. And immediately he recognizes his dilemma. I'm going to die here. So instantly he says, Lord Jesus, come and rescue me. And suddenly the passenger door opens. 
And in comes Jesus. The man's thrilled. He said, let's go. You're here to rescue me, aren't you? You're here to get me out, aren't you? Jesus says, no. I'm here to rescue you from your greatest fear. Suddenly the man realizes that real peace comes from being together with Jesus, regardless of the circumstance. The man doesn't even ask Jesus, you mean we're going to die here together? Because he knows that they are. If you're a believer and you sob, there are things in your life that you can't control. There are problems that you're facing that are too great for you and you know it. You're ready to check out. And you call out in your spirit and say, Lord, where are you? Can you understand what I'm going through? Don't just go to the cross to get your answer. Go to this mountain road to get your answer. The answer is not only does he sob over unbelief, he sobs with the believer. Where do we get the notion that to be saved means to be delivered from trouble? Where's the compassion in that? If ever there's a place that proves that God sees suffering as an avenue to peace and safety, it's here. I don't want the Lord to rescue me from all the pain of life. I want the Lord to be with me in it. Better stated, I want to be with Him in it. Because the world's watching. They need to see a difference between those who suffer with no hope and those who suffer with every hope. It's Passion Sunday. Can you think of a better time to think about all that?